I love the show. I, I listen to it. You know, I get excited when the, the new episode comes out. So I like to nerd out to my podcast on the way to work. So appreciate the content. We have a fan base. Yes. Yes. Zach, have you read any of uh, any of those books that we've done episodes on? I have. Yeah. In fact, I read most of the getting to yes. I haven't read the whole thing, though, but I, I've read some of it. Yeah. Chris is still working on that one. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the views and opinions of authors expressed herein do not necessarily state or reflect those of the United States government and shall not be used for advertising or product endorsement purposes. Hey there, C41A listeners. Greg Taylor here announcing a special series of episodes. We wanted to spend some time with our fellow MSC officers out in the Air Force world, especially those that have unique deployment experiences, and learn how their time downrange helped them grow as an administrator and as a leader for their future jobs. So, we sat down with these MSCs and got their stories, and we think you'll enjoy getting to know a bit about the people we serve with. If what you hear provides you with a moment of inspiration or makes you curious to learn more, we encourage you to reach out to the people interviewed or to us here at C41A.com and ask a question or let us know your thoughts on these stories. And now, on with the show. We'll just get started right away then. Zach, if you could just tell us who you are and, and what your current role is. So I'm Captain Zach Gooch. So my current duty title, I'm the Resource Management and CSS Flight Commander at Ramstein, the 86th Medical Group. But previous to that, I was the Operations Support Flight Commander at the Air Medical Evacuation Squadron at Ramstein. And how long have you been a Medical Service Corps officer? I have been an MSC now for eight years. And where were you before Ramstein? I was in the medical service corps office as the fellow so that was a really cool experience working with general petrikowski and spent a year doing air staff stuff so that was really cool you know it's one of those special duties that you know we see advertised every now and again it's like what does that person do i'm sure it's an interesting msc career you've had thus far i keep finding my way into strange things that don't necessarily fall into the pyramid, but I've just learned to be okay with it. So <laughs> I just kind of roll with the punches. Well, speaking of those just interesting positions, uh, you had mentioned that you were the ops support flight commander in AE. So can you just tell us a little bit about what that role is? You know, How did you get into it and what is it that you did in the squadron? Yeah, so the, the Ops Support Flight Commander is a really unique role that you find in AE squadrons. So there's only four active duty AE squadrons scattered around the world. And so MSCs, they play a role in AE, but they have a sort of a weird, there's only a couple of positions that you find for MSCs across the AE enterprise. And one of those is the Ops Support Flight Commander, which I consider pretty much the pinnacle MSC job outside of the DO, more of the CGO, early FGO level. The Ops Support Flight Commander is kind of one of those unique jobs where you're basically in a miniature MDSS. So you cover everything that an MDSS would cover, maybe with the exception of TOPA, TRICARE stuff. You don't really delve too much into that. But the rest of the functions you will find kind of neatly tucked away as part of this squadron. And you may only have one or two people working in each one of those disciplines, but you do cover it. So everything from logistics, readiness, CSS, systems, 
you, you pretty much run the gambit resource management, which you're doing line-side resource management versus what we're normally used to uh, with DHP money and that kind of stuff. So there's definitely some differences to it and makes it very unique and very challenging. So how did you get into that position? Were there certain qualifications or experience that you needed? So actually, I came to the unit as the OIC of readiness, and I did that for about eight months. And then the current Ops Support Flight Commander left to do a different job. And so the vacancy opened up, and I had expressed interest in wanting to do that. And so the DO and the boss came and set me down and said, hey, there's an opportunity. We'd like you to be the the new flight commander. And so I gladly took the role and didn't really know what I was getting myself into, just knew it was something I was interested in doing. And, you know, it was quite a three years, I will say that for sure. And then after that now, then you return to the med group, get some of that MTF experience again? Yeah, so I figured having done the fellowship and then being three years in AE, it was time for me to return to the mothership. So the opportunity came up for me to get uh, over to the med group, uh, matched to the job there and so the, the RMO job is what I'm doing now, which is really nice. Were you looking forward to coming back to the MTF, or were you kind of like excited to be on that line side mission a lot, or uh, how did you feel about that? I'll be honest, I, I'm excited to be back in the MTF. You know, it was a very hectic three years, given all the things that went on between the pandemic, OAR, OAW, and then, you know, the Ukrainian crises going on currently. All of that stuff heavily impacting Ramstein, the European Theater, AE Enterprise. So it was a very, very hectic time. And so I was definitely ready for a change to get back into the MTF, do some more traditional MSC work. And uh, frankly, just, you know, the DHA transition, that kind of stuff, that's just very fascinating to me because it's just such a massive change. And so being a part of that and getting to Although it's painful sometimes, getting to be a part of that and uh, shepherding that process is pretty cool. Well, you you know, I'm glad you brought up the ops tempo at Ramstein because you know the focus of this this interview series is on our deployment experiences. And so, what UTC were you on at the AE squadron? So the whole time I was there, I filled the MSC spot on an AE liaison team. So that's a two-person gig, a nurse, and an MSC traditionally. And so that was my UTC the whole time I was there. And the primary focus of that being interfacing with sister services on the safe movement of patients within the AE enterprise. Yeah, and then, of course, being in Europe and part of UCFE, Manoj and I both have had time there and found that we were a lot more joint overseas than what we were called or what our experiences were being stateside. Do you agree? Oh, absolutely. Between the NATO partners and then sister services, there's just a lot more interoperability than what you would see in a stateside MTF setting or you know a stateside AE unit, just because of the dynamics of working in someone else's country, in a completely different theater, uh, different continent. So... I do feel like we interface a lot more with the Army, uh, even on the medical side with LARMC, you know, Longstool Regional Medical Center, uh, and the Ramstein Clinic. There's just a lot of interplay there uh, between the, the services. What was the deployment that you went on? Uh, can you just tell a little bit of background about that AELT job? 
Yeah, so what ended up taking place was when the influx of troops happened in response to the Ukrainian aggression situation early on in the calendar year, the need for some patient movement advice or inter- interface came up. And so the, the AE unit at Ramstein, they service all of UCOM. And so uh, we were first up to provide that service. And so it was a very, very quick turnaround where we got called, I think it was a Friday and we're there by Tuesday night. So it was a very, very quick turnaround, which being an enabler, that's what you're used to, to being told is gonna happen. And so actually going through the process, it was very, very quick. Yeah, you mentioned the, the enabler. So we're, is the whole AE squadron on that enabler status or, is, or how are you postured for deployment within UCOM? So the whole AE squadron sits as an enabler asset, so ground and flying asset. Uh, so that's actually, you know, you sign on saying, hey, I understand, i got to stay ready all the time. It's even on the patch, always ready. Uh, and so we definitely maintained that. Um, so being able to go within 24 to 48 hours, kind of being the standard that we were trying to uphold. Okay. And so, you know, when we talk about pre-deployment training, then, or, you know, you preparing for this liaison team deployment, you know, with such a quick turn, there wasn't much from a training and preparation standpoint that you could do. You already had to know what you knew, right? Yeah, it was, it's very much, you know what you know, and you go and between you and the nurse counterpart, you know, they kind of cover more of the clinical patient packaging discussions with providers where on the the administrative side, we're working more of the ground support logistics. And so a lot of the things that we know as MSCs, you pull from a lot of problem solving, especially in a situation where you're in a very dynamic environment with very minimal infrastructure and kind of an ever-changing battle space. So you're, you're constantly trying to keep up with what's going on and adjusting your processes to meet those new challenges. And so you do pull a lot from those experiences as an MSC. And I, I think that goes along really well with, you know, the, the hearing with the other MSCs you come across, especially the young LTs, everyone wants to go into AE. And I know that was what I wanted to do early on, but now being in for so long and hearing the stories of other people, it's like, I don't think I was ready as a young LT for that kind of job because you just said it, you, you did that well-rounded experience of all the areas that when you're ready to go, you know what you know and you're there doing it immediately. So for those people that are wanting to go to AE eventually, having that more well-rounded aspect of MSC career field and all the, all the different jobs we can do is probably good to have in the background before you're kind of put on this UTC, am I right? Yeah, I think that that's a great point. I, I felt that I was better prepared having at least done some rotations as an MSC and seen you know, various bits and pieces. And then the fact that the deployment came towards the end of my time in AE, I had really gotten immersed in things that I haven't done before, like logistics and systems. So I was much more comfortable in those realms than I had been going into it. Uh, and I went into it as a, as a mid-captain. So I, you know, I'd already had a little bit of experience, but it's definitely something you want to go into with as much experience in those areas as possible, because I think that's just going to make you a better operator in that environment. No, that's, I, I think you both are hitting on, you know, so, uh, definitely an unwritten understanding, you know, I, I'm sure Zach, let me know if I, I'm wrong here, but 
felt like as a deployed MSC, you're often looked at as, you know, the adult in the room or expected to be the adult in the room that you, you have a grasp on all those support related aspects. Oh yeah. Yeah. That's for sure. Especially when it's, it's, you know, all heads turn to you and it's like, okay, yeah, I'll figure it out. And so I did a lot of that, whether it was interfacing with the civilian airport security and, and trying to communicate through language barriers about what we're doing and why we need to get to where we need to get in, inside of security or, you know, whether it was we need to get vehicles from point A to point B through a secure checkpoint and we need to do it in a certain amount of time and we, we can't delay that. Uh, and oh, by the way, we're moving a patient while we're doing that and we're coordinating for a plane that's going to land and then they have their own times and time hacks that they have to meet. And so trying to coordinate all those things while the nurse counterpart is taking care of the patient packaging and interfacing with TPMRC, interfacing with the providers, it's just a very dynamic situation. So you, you, I know you're starting to touch on a little bit about some of those deployment experiences and some of the things that you did while you were on your deployment. Let's just talk about that a little bit. Uh, so where did you deploy to? So we deployed to a location in Poland, and we were there basically two Air Force folks and a sea of Army. So there, were, <laughs> there was a whole lot of Army, and then there was us. Uh, and so we, we got the, the common mistake of, are you pilots? You know, especially because my nurse counterpart wore a flight suit. So that got everybody very confused. <laughs> we, we were there for about 60 days working directly with the army. And that was the first time I had worked that closely with the army. I've been deployed before, been deployed around and with the army, but not to that level. Uh, and so that was a really interesting experience being definitely the minority as the air force member in a very large, uh, army environment. So that was really a cool opportunity. Did you inherit, you know, that mission from somebody or, or were you the first in? We were the first in for the air force, at least, for the medical side on the AE stuff. So there were other Air Force members there doing flight line management stuff, basically working the airfield side. Uh, and then there were some TACPs uh, assigned with the Army. But for medical and Air Force, we were it. There was uh, us and then two IDMTs who were working primarily with the Air Force guys. Uh, and so, you know, we had to learn very quickly their language. And although we all provided healthcare, there was a role two there that they had set up inside of this facility. And, you know, we integrated with them right away. And, you know, we, we learned the differences between what they would do as a role two and how we would do like an EMEDS setup, you know, small, small deviations and the way that they structure themselves and their hierarchy and that kind of thing. So that was interesting to get to be a part of because we, you know, we, we trained to the EMEDS package where, they do things a little bit differently. So getting to see how they would set it up and how they would lead their medical care was kind of a cool opportunity. Now, building something from scratch like that, you know, if you don't have a continuity book, you know, what kind of challenges did that pose for you? So funny enough, we got there and within about, I don't know, eight hours or so of getting on the ground in the middle of the night, they said, hey, we've got eight patients stacked up, ready to go. And we really don't know what to do. And the last time we tried to push patients out, it went horribly wrong. Here's what we did last time and go. And so we basically hit the ground, absolutely running 
We're working out of a facility that is basically just been taken over for this purpose, but is a civilian facility of sorts. And then we're interfacing and working through a civilian airport that has no military background whatsoever. Uh, and so also working through, of course, a language barrier, we were building continuity as we went uh, and how we were going to do this, how we were going to get the patients through, the timing we had to do, how long was it going to take to get through security. Uh, and a lot of those things fell back to me because I let the nurse focus primarily on the patients and primarily on the clinical side of it. So everything else, all the logistics went to me. And so I, I spent a lot of time trying to come up with ways, like one of the things I developed, or not really developed, I thought of doing was Google Translate on my phone. I would just type a message and show it to the guards and it cut through us doing hand gestures and you know the, the awkwardness of it. They, they could get the idea of what it is I needed them to do and then they would just type back in their phone. So we'd just be standing there <laughs> having like a text conversation, but it worked. And we were able to smooth out a process that had really gotten them upset in previous iterations. And then there was a couple times where we would print off a letter in Polish and hand it to the guard. And it would tell them, you know, hey, we, we're going to take a patient to this helicopter. We just need to get to this spot. It's going to land at this time. And then they took it from there and they would make phone calls and escort us. And it made it easier for them. It was little things like that that we would just have to come up with an idea and be like, well, let's just do this and see if it works. And then, you know, the army was just like, Hey, we have no idea how to do this. We really need your help. We've got these people who need to go. So can you please help us with this? And so we just kind of took the ball and ran with it. <laughs> That's awesome, man. I, I love the, just using the tools that you have on hand or, you know, in your pocket, I guess, to just overcome that language barrier. That's fantastic. Good, good plug in for yeah, Google stock. The translation. <laughs> yeah, I'm telling you, it was clutch. It was absolutely clutch because really we left and we had our cell phones and we had our government laptops. And that's primarily what we worked off of. Uh, we later had them send us a printer out of our WRM stock and we used that thing until it broke. But we were really just working off cell phones and laptops. And that's what we did for the whole 60 days. We just made it work. And, you know, we, we didn't we didn't have a whole lot of stuff. But what we did have, we used really smartly, I felt like. So can you tell me a little bit about, you know, what some of the key relationships that you developed out there? You know, since you were that that logistics, that support hub, who did you need to who did you need to develop a connection with once you landed? So the first thing I wanted to establish was building some kind of uh, relationship with the Air Force folks that were working the airfield. Because I knew if I was going to be trying to get in and out of that airfield, I should probably make a connection with them because they're already over there and they already know everybody and they already kind of have an operation. And at least we speak the same language in terms of being Air Force to Air Force. So I started there and then I quickly realized that, you know, the, the Army has some amazing assets, and we worked very closely with the dust-off guys, so the, the medevac flyers and their crews, which is kind of like AE just in a helicopter versus fixed wing. And so we worked with them closely on several cases, and then working with their the Army surgeon that was on division staff, building the relationships with them, the sergeant major, understanding don't call a sergeant major a sir. You know, that's just my southern roots. I can't help it. But you know, stuff like that, we did a lot of networking that way. And there was, there was a lot of times 
that the army MSCs that we worked with, which were really, really good MSCs, you know, they would be running into an issue. And I would say like, hey, have you thought about this? You know, we could have something flown down here, right? Because we've got missions coming in. We've got a cargo jet coming this way. Why not put something on there if you need it? And so we would start building these sort of like routes with, hey, we need this, but we can't get it here in a certain amount of time. Well, it's at Ramstein. Why don't we just throw it on the on the bird and bring it down for the mission? And so we started sort of like our own supply chain in that way. And so that was really cool to be able to help solve some problems and make some phone calls. And my loggies at the AE squadron, they were clutch. They, so many times they came through with, with getting us what we needed um, because getting things where we were at was difficult because it wasn't like you had an APO you could have something shipped to. If you couldn't go out and swipe a card on the economy, you probably couldn't get it or you couldn't get it uh, very quickly. So stuff like that became very important very quickly. And actually, I never thought about this until you said the story, but like, I mean, that's kind of the overall probably vision I'm thinking of what DHA wants, you know, us working with our counterparts real easily, interchangeably, and, you know, making the mission work with whatever resources we can share between us. And I know you are probably going through that DHA transition right now. That's just like a great example that I haven't heard of yet on the on the ops side and the line side of that mission that probably translates pretty well as we transition to DHA. Yeah, I mean, really harnessing the the strength of what we do, being more well-rounded MSCs. You know, we, we move through the core competencies where the Army and the Navy, they tend to compartmentalize in one thing, and they're really, really good at that one thing. I know the MSC that I was deployed with, he was a logistics guy, and he knew logistics like the back of his hand. I mean, he could quote you these random requirements that you – have to order certain textiles they have to be made in the u.s per this guidance and this law and reg and i mean he just was so detail oriented in that where i i was blown away by the level of detail he knew on that but then i could cover somewhat intelligently a fairly large amount of things which he was pretty impressed by as well so um, i kind of found that to be a cool difference between how we grow our mscs Yeah, I have a similar experience in the opportunities that I've had to work with the Army where, you know, if I need, you know, major to major or, you know, officer to officer, I need a technical expert in pad or logistics or planner or, you know, as a planner, man, the Army can just pull out some some fantastic officers that just really know their stuff. And that's been a valuable connection in past assignments for me, for sure. So now that you're back from your deployment, you know, what are some of the stories or what, what are some of the memorable moments from your experience that have stuck with you on, on where, you know, you had that uh, a tangible, noticeable impact on the mission or on a patient? So a couple of things, I would say some really neat experiences that happened during that deployment. One of those being, it was all over the news. Uh, I think most people probably had heard about the reporter from Fox News who was uh, pretty gravely injured in an attack covering the the early on in Ukraine. And he got moved through various methods and made it to our location. Uh, and we were able to help coordinate patient movement for him to get back to, to Landstuhl and, and, you know, ultimately back to the United States. I really thought that that was an interesting thing to get to be a part of. And I was really proud of that. And then also 
just the opportunities to interact with the Army and work with the 82nd Airborne, which is, you know, in and of itself a historic unit that just has so much history and background. And, you know, we got to do some familiarization stuff with the, the dust-off guys. We went on a familiarization ride with the medevac team. Just a great group of people, very, very knowledgeable medics. And, of course, you know, helicopters are super cool. So we, we had a lot of fun with that, and uh, it was a great learning experience for all of us. And just getting to build something from the ground up and, you know, having been on previous deployments where there's a lot of infrastructure and there's a lot of continuity binders and, you know, people who've gone to this location three, four or five times, you know, that type of stuff to being something that's completely brand new. uh, And we are 100 percent the first people doing it. That was a really neat experience. uh, And I'm really glad that I got the opportunity to do that. And that meant a lot to me. I remember hearing about uh, that reporter, and it's pretty cool, you know, when you see a news story like that. Obviously, at the time, I didn't know that you were out there and that you were one link in the chain. But now, hearing hearing your story, it's it's pretty cool to know that you know, hey, we were we were there. We helped make that happen as an industry or as a core, and that's pretty exciting. That gets me. That gets my juices flowing. You know. Yeah, absolutely. As far you know, in, with MSCs, we don't get into patient care nearly as much, you know, as our clinician counterparts. But I thought that it was really neat. There was a specific case, uh, a member who actually worked in the role too with us, got pretty sick pretty quick and within 24 hours was in real bad shape. And we basically were up for about that 24 hours or a little bit over that coordinating movement. And uh, it just so happens we were able to get it to work out that a plane coming with some stuff uh, was able to drop off that cargo, and so she she got flown back as the sole patient with the crew uh, and the only thing in the back of a C-17. But we ab- we were able to get her to a higher echelon of care, and ultimately she got squared away and uh, was much better for it. Um, and so just being able to be a small link in that, that close to the patient, you know, riding in the ambulance over there, helping coordinate the movement and making it smooth and getting her out of pain and into treatment was really a cool experience. Yeah. Those are the things that, you know, that really, that I, I want in my shadow box, you know, when, when I hang up the uniform, it's like, if I could capture that in a nugget, you know, that'd be great. I was going to say, that probably helps reblue you a little bit to have those experiences. Not that you needed the rebluing, but I know a lot of people will get out of that sense of, oh, I remember why I signed up and why I joined again, and just helps them continue on their career. Absolutely. Yeah, it was, uh, it was neat to be a part of that kind of patient care level where I hadn't really had that opportunity before. And I actually learned a fair amount from my nurse counterpart, you know, just helping put in the, the patient movement requests you know, and we, we analyze data as MSCs. And so when I would be putting in vital signs, you know, and she, she'd raise an eyebrow and be like, are you sure that's right? I'm like, well, that's what it's written right here. And she'd be like, let's take that again. And then I realized, okay, oh, yeah, that's probably not the correct number. Somebody wrote something down the wrong way. So just kind of learning what I was looking at versus just putting in data and, and sort of analyzing it from a clinician standpoint. Not that I'm in any way a clinician, but just being able to have a little bit of that corporate knowledge uh, was really cool. And, you know, 
as a as an administrator, you don't necessarily get involved at that level too often. So that was kind of cool. No, that's good crosstalk, and I think it's it's important for us to recenter from time to time on how we our skills complement each other. You know, where uh, sometimes the relationship between support and clinical ops is adversarial or or it's at least painted that way you know that uh, mscs are just being counters or or whatever but what we bring to the table you know can help them be better clinicians or can help them you know expand their impact and uh, their abilities beyond what they otherwise would and and their knowledge on us helps us or at least helps me i think refocus on you know who the customer really is at the end of the day so Zach, now that now that you're back and done with this deployment, how has how did that deployment experience change or what skills or experiences did you bring back from that deployment that you've been able to change or implement on how you do your job back at home station? I think uh, one big takeaway for me was trying to I mean, you know, we always joke around that flexibility is the key to air power. But I mean, in all honesty, just being flexible open-minded uh and trying to attack problems outside the box thinking I, I really that reinforced to me that if you need to get something done you can get it done it's just a matter of you know keep turning that rubik's cube until you find the angle that's going to work and so you know i did learn or sharpen a lot of those critical thinking skills and so i think that that was a big takeaway for me and just that persistence because, you know, when, when you're faced with, we've got to move these patients and it's not a matter of, well, I'm just going to wait for this email to come back or, oh, I just got to, you know, once the policy gets handed down, it's, you are the policy, you are the one making it happen and people depend on you to get it done. And so, you know, you just, you just find a way. I've tried to apply that home station. We all know if you've deployed before, you know, home station has all of the bureaucracy that we loathe most days. You know, deployments tend to cut through a lot of that red tape. But trying to find ways to help my folks cut through some red tape uh, and get things done and, and ultimately, like you said, Greg, serve the patient because that's what we're there to do. You know, uh, we're there to support the clinical operations and ultimately serve the patient. So using those critical thinking skills and trying to get to yes, you know, those are things I took away from that. Hey, we read that book, Getting to Yes. <laughs> yeah, right. Small plug, small plug right there. Yeah, if you, if you haven't listened to episode one of the Seat 41A podcast, give it a listen. I swear I didn't mean to do that. That was that literally just came out. All right, Zach. No, uh, I think those are uh, you know some really impactful lessons learned and good experience that I'm sure you'll have plenty of opportunity to share with your peers and, and maybe some new accessions as you start working with them over the coming years, uh, you know, before they have an opportunity to deploy. The last question that I have is just, uh, you know, what closing advice do you have for others out there, other MSC officers who may find themselves in your role as an AELT or as a ops support flight commander, you know, how, how can they set themselves up for success? So I would say two big things is ask a lot of questions. Don't be afraid to ask the questions and don't make any assumptions, especially in that environment. So there's a lot of regulations and there's a lot of 
requirements that go into patient movement in, in an aircraft. And the, the subject matter experts are your teammates. So, you know, make those relationships count with the, the nurses and the technicians who fly those missions because they're, they're highly trained uh, and they have a the very extensive background in that and understand their mission so that you can better support that mission. Because I think um, just like with the clinical staff, I think there's always the chance that you can get a more adversarial situation where, you know, support feels some kind of way about the clinical side, the flying side. But if you can overcome that and you can build some networks and relationships, I think you could be very successful as an MSC in that enterprise uh, because MSCs bring just a wealth of knowledge and administrative superpowers. And, you know, the, the nurses will be honest with you and say, hey, you know, you guys are just better at this than we are, you know, and, and that's what you bring to the fight. And so, you know, leveraging those relationships and, and trying to figure out how you can better support the mission and then, you know, staying connected with your, your NTF counterparts. If you happen to find yourself at a base that, you know, most bases are going to have an MTF, you know, stay plugged in with the MSCs on that side as well, because, you know, we, we help each other solve problems all the time. And that doesn't stop when you leave the med group. Continue to build those relationships as well, because I have found that networking and, and the relationship part of it, that makes things so much easier and, and so much quicker to getting to solutions. Oh, that's fantastic advice, Zach. I think those are all things that, you know, regardless of the position that you're going to go in, you know, the relationships and communication and having a questioning attitude, you know, that you're seeking to learn, seeking to understand is a, is a good perspective to have regardless of the role that you're stepping into. Yeah. And, and I mean, I didn't know what I didn't know, honestly. I mean, I went into AE like, oh, yeah, we move patients in an airplane. That's simple enough, right? But, I mean, when you peel the onion back, it is much, much more dynamic, and there's so much more that goes into it, training level and the, the level that they have to maintain uh, in terms of just the hitting certain training every quarter, taking tests over and over and over again. There's a level of readiness that they maintain that's very impressive that I wasn't even aware of. And so just understanding that enterprise from that perspective you know, it gives you a completely different view on how that whole enterprise works. Yeah, I was going to say, I remember at one point I was doing Tricare Topa at Lake and Heath, and there was a moment where I think a plane was supposed to land either at Ramsey or something, and it wasn't able to, so they were about to divert to Lake and Heath. And I remember I was like, holy crap, what am I supposed to do? And we were trying to coordinate with Mildenhall and landing over there, and then ambulance is getting over there to bring them back to Lake and Heath, stage them in beds here. And I was like, whoa, this is, this is a lot of moving parts. So that was just one instance that actually didn't even occur. It, it ended up being able to land somewhere in Germany. But just thinking about what we had to pre-plan for that, I was like, man, this is what AE does like every day. Yeah, it, it does turn out to be a lot. And it, it usually happens so quickly, too. It'll be something like that. You know, like a like a OAR OAW scenario where you, you get told like, "Hey, we're gonna have uh, you know uh, maybe two thousand uh, refugees," and then you know, <laughs> thirty thousand later, you know, <laughs> yeah, I mean, this one thing after another. I think the planning estimate was two thousand ish. <laughs> ish, yeah. it's a big ish. That standard deviation was about twenty eight thousand. Yeah. Yeah. Plus, plus or minus 30,000. Yeah. 
I remember thinking, wow, I think the numbers are slightly off, but <laughs> Manoj, uh, do you have any other questions that came up or anything you want to circle back to? Uh, I actually did. was curious about circling back at the beginning. You mentioned, you know, you're doing resource management now, but then when you were kind of doing the resource management element while doing AE, you're kind of playing with line money and, uh, and that side of things. And so now coming back, cause I'm doing resource management now here as well. And, Having to deal with the DHP fences that we have and the and the DHA realm of what budgeting is and how they calculate that. I wanted to know like what differences you saw that maybe things worked better on the resource management side, uh, or what worked what worked worse for us or them, or what were the key differences between those two sides? Yeah, that's a that's a really great question. I think the biggest difference, at least just from the line financing that we did at the AE squadron compared to, you know, like what I'm doing right now is just the the segregation of money is way more stringent uh, and way more detail oriented on the medical side. Uh, I felt like on the line side, we spent a lot of time. I mean, there were colors of money, of course, but it was much more fluid, it felt like. And, you know, I went into AE thinking like, oh, yeah, flying unit, line side, you know, we're going to be rolling in dough. And, you know, I was very surprised that we struggled financially. And so that was that was always a challenge as the ops support flight commander was how do I fund this mission and how do I make sure everyone has what they need and do it on a shoestring budget? Uh, and so we had to get super creative. Um, we did a lot of you for work. And so we got really, really good at petitioning for UFERS and having stuff teed up, ready to go. So anytime those calls came out, we were ready to pounce on it. And we were successful at, at you know getting some of that money. And we're talking about UFERS going up in an operations group with flying units to a flying centric wing. Uh, and we were able to pull down uh, some of those UFERS. So I was really proud of, of our team and, and how we were able to execute that. But you know, being back in the DHP side, I remember, you know, all of our bags and, and all of the stuff that, that we do on the, the health side. And we're also dealing with a whole lot more money, too. So, you know, much bigger budget. But, yeah, the line side, it felt more fluid. It felt more, you know, if, if we if we needed it, we just went and asked for it. And a lot of times we'd get fed and we'd go out and execute. So it felt much less red tape. The key question is, though, did you have to do Dimmer's Eye? No Dimmer's Eye was found in the AE squadron. (laughs) (laughs) But, you know, now that I'm the RMO, let me put that plug out there. The Dimmer's Eye is very important. Very, very. (laughs) Mepper's data, you know, that is the key for manpower and resourcing. So don't forget that. And please spill out your time card. (laughs) Reach it. <laughs> Shameless plug. <laughs> this paid this paid advertisement was brought to you by what uh <laughs> what defense contractor runs the MEPR system? <laughs> That's a good question. I, I, Northrop Grumman or Lockheed Lockheed <laughs> or something. Yeah. You know, fill in defense contractor, whoever. Yeah, no, just uh one more editorial comment. Has uh Lieutenant Colonel Tompkins, has he taken over the MDSS yet? Or is that still coming? Uh, he actually takes command tomorrow. Tomorrow afternoon is the change command. Awesome. So he is a really good dude. Oh, good. M- mentor of mine. You know, I worked for him previously. Uh, just 
really really grounded individual you know and so there's a lot to appreciate there uh you know that uh he's not one to you know kind of fly off the handle and tweak on you know every little thing he's a and he's coming from dha so he uh he definitely has some insight on the inner workings and how to get things done there, you know. So, I think he's going to, you know, do a lot of great things for you guys. I'm glad to hear that. I'm uh, I'm excited. You know, I, I met him briefly, but it was one of those like he was sort of sneaking in to do some in processing and then snuck back out. So we didn't get a chance to really to talk too much, but uh, he seemed really nice. So I'm excited to to get to know him. So. Zach, as we wrap up the interview here, I just want to close by saying thank you so much for spending a little bit of time with us and sharing your experiences uh, and how we MSC officers are impacting the mission, you know, across the globe. And and so we're really thankful that you could spend some time here. And uh, if your words inspire some people, are you okay with them reaching out to you uh, to ask any follow-up questions? Yeah, absolutely. Thank you guys for having me and for providing this platform and opportunity for myself and I'm sure other MSCs as well to uh, talk about their experiences. And yeah, look me up in the global. I'm not too hard to find. Zachary Gooch. So there's not too many of us out there. But yeah, reach out to me. I'm happy to answer any questions, point you in the right direction as far as AE stuff goes or MSC stuff or, or anything really. So kind of an open book can do all right so he's uh captain zach gooch and coming to us from ramstein air base in germany uh so thanks a lot zach and for those listeners out there if you haven't uh subscribed to our podcast and followed us on facebook uh, please consider doing so and you can get alerted to the latest episodes as they come out and with that uh i'm greg taylor uh with manoj rima Uh, we just want to say thank you for listening have a great day C41A is an independent company and produced by C41A Media. Digital media support and creative director, Manoj Rima. Marketing and IT, Christopher Foote. And director and outreach, Greg Taylor.